Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to All You Can Eat, a food podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Catherine Cleary. Today, we have a serving of meat and one veg. Later, we've got a steak with an impressive backstory. But first, television producer and longtime vegetarian Moya Carney has a bone to pick with Irish restaurants. Like most people, I enjoy going out for a good meal and really look forward to eating the kind of food I'd never dream of cooking at home. But I've long lamented that most restaurants don't put any effort into making something decent for the vegetarian diner. I've been veggie since I was 13 years old. In those days, I was regarded as a curiosity, or an eccentric, as my mortified dad muttered under his breath one time as I questioned the origin of a soup stock in a Midlands pit stop. Meals out were rare enough, and when they did happen, the most you could expect would be an omelette and chips, or a fairly lacklustre salad. Things improved in the late 80s, when you could feast on a hastily defrosted slab of vegetarian lasagna from the back of the freezer. In the 90s, it was all phyllo pastry, artfully arranged and stuffed with some unlikely combination of root vegetables. Later on that decade, it was the turn of the risotto. The noughties saw the rise of beetroot and goat's cheese combos, and they're still with us today. The most recent offering, which is surprisingly ubiquitous, is pan-fried gnocchi. Almost every restaurant I've been to in the last year or so offers it as the veggie option. Now, there's nothing wrong with pan-fried gnocchi. But when every restaurant in Dublin is offering pretty much the same choice, going out for dinner doesn't seem quite so appetising. Lately, I was keen to try a new restaurant. After a glowing review in the Irish Times, it was the hottest ticket in town and booked out for weeks in advance. After finally securing a booking, I flagged them in advance that I was vegetarian and was dying to see what they would have on the menu. Actually, there was nothing. Nada. Not a thing. So, they said they'd do a special dish for me on the night. My starter was a plate of carrots. Not just ordinary carrots, mind you, but beautifully cooked and sculpted carrots artistically arranged on a plate. If memory serves me correctly, one of the carrots may have been black. But it was a few carrots on the plate, nonetheless. That's actually all it was. Never mind, I thought, at least I'll be hungry for the main course. The main course was three or four pieces of beetroot and a few blobs of goat's cheese. Again, beautifully arranged on the plate and extremely tasty. But for top dollar in Dublin's most in-demand restaurant, I went home hungry. I'm conscious this may sound like a first world problem. But in this day and age, when there are far more vegetarians around than when I took my first tentative steps towards the plant-based diet, it seems ludicrous that this is the best our top chefs can do. Unlike Café Paradiso in Cork, Dublin has no high-end vegetarian restaurant. Again, it seems strange that our capital city could not sustain such a restaurant. Taste aside, there are benefits to a vegetarian diet that cannot be discounted, both for the person and the planet. Without decent and tempting choices on our restaurant's menus, how are we going to encourage people to eat less meat for the good of the planet? 
Never mind the health arguments. There are a growing army of disgruntled vegetarians out here, keen to enjoy ourselves for a meal out, but in no way encouraged to return to any restaurant that offers us such limited choices. That was Moya Carney coming to you from our Pet Peeves Corner. Chefs, time to up your vegetable game. Next, we're headed to a basement kitchen in the centre of Dublin, where a chef with a hot pan is about to do this. So what's so special about this particular ribeye steak? The answer lies a good way west of Georgian Dublin. I'm in a car with a scientist driving across the Burren in County Clare. We're in the High Burren, that's Carron Village. He's Dr. Brendan Dunford, and he came here to investigate the effect farming was having on this astonishing landscape. Our motivation here is to conserve what we think is the most extraordinary, one of the most extraordinary places in the world. I think the barn is amazing on any number of levels. And it's just got this incredible interconnection between nature and culture and the archaeology and the flora and the landscape. It's fantastic. It's, it's worth preserving. And I don't feel you can protect and preserve something by, by law. I don't, you know, you can't say this is now a protected area. Therefore, it shall remain forever. Thus, type thing. It doesn't work. You got, yeah, yeah, you have to manage it. It's not a wilderness, nor is it a kind of museum. It's a living landscape, and kind of we recognised that a long time ago. And the only ones who have a the experience, b the capacity, c the skills to do this are the people who live here, the farmers. Brendan arrived here 18 years ago. What brought you to the burn in the first place? came as a student to try and explore the relationship between farmers and the burn because I think at the time there was a concern that farmers are, you know, potentially wrecking the burn. Farmers felt that, look, they were being written out of the story that they weren't being consulted. So, Brendan spent three years looking at the plants and talking to the farmers. He's allowed us eventually to publish a little book about farming in the burn and that kind of set the record straight that farming isn't just about food production. Farmers aren't destroying the burn. In actual fact, Farming practices have shaped the burn in a way which is largely positive. The biodiversity is here because of farming. The archaeology is here because of farming. And the real problem is not farmers, but the absence of farmers. The burn has a unique farming tradition called winterage. When most other farmers in the country are bringing cattle indoors for winter, burn cattle are brought onto the mountains to graze. It's all thanks to the limestone slab, which absorbs summer heat and releases it over the winter. Grazing keeps the scrub grass from smothering the more delicate species and the dung fertilises the plant life. So in summer, the burn bursts into flower and becomes Disneyland for plant lovers. I've joined Brendan as he gives friends Aidan and Cecily a tour of the highlights. It's just full of flowers. If you listen carefully, you might hear the cuckoo that kept us company along the way. Birds for trefoil, lovely little trefoil plants. Birds for trefoil. But you'll also see... um, what you see here, they haven't quite come into bloom yet. I talked to you before about the ladies' bed straw. This is a this is a plant which people used to collect once upon a time, lie out in the sun, let it dry out, and put it into your pillow. You stuff it into your pillow, so it has a bed straw, and it release, releases some kind of a, a, a laxant. I'm not sure of the name now. Helps you to sleep. So it's used to trees, I suppose, or to counteract hypochondria. Uh, once upon a time. It's hypochondria when you can't sleep, isn't it? Insomnia. 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 (laughs) Hypochondria is when you're lying awake worrying that you might be sick when you can't sleep. (laughs) It's kind of relief. This one then, I remember old farmers when they came to the barn first used to tell me about the yarrow. That used to collect the yarrow and boil it in milk. 
and rub it into their bones as a cure against arthritis. I could use that. We'll sort, <laughs> we'll, sort, we'll sort you out that a little bit later. Brendan knows these plants so well because he spent hours counting them. He discovered an average of 30 species in every square metre, which makes the burren one of the most species-rich grasslands in the world. His party trick on a guided tour is to roll up the thin layer of soil like a green and flowery bath mat. You can roll this up and bring it home with you. <laughs> so you can see there's about an inch of soil here. It's very thin. It's growing right under rock. Um, it's incredible. What you also have here, yeah, you have about two metres of rainfall here every year as well. So you have kind of like a carpet with, a, with thin soil, flushed all the time with rainwater. So most of the nutrients have been washed out of this soil. It's, it's been flushed. So it, it, it's very nutrient poor. It also gets very, very hot in summertime. Like this limestone absorbs the heat. So this suffers a lot from drought, would you believe? Sometimes it's flooded in wintertime with rainwater. Sometimes then it's... Now, the significance of that is that normal plants, like your daisies and your strong grasses and your... Um, thistles, they can't survive here. They need lots of nutrients, they need stability. <coughs> they're, they're very opportunistic plants, but yeah. they can't survive very well. Uh, so they don't, this is a very stress, stressful environment and those okay. type of plants can't live here. The plants that can live here tend to be very small and compact and yeah. tough. So that's why uh, these plants have an opportunity to live here yeah. because the big bullies can't survive, so these little guys can survive right. instead. So you can see there's loads of them packed in. This little one called a yellow rattle. This is your trefoil. You have a little uh, fescue grass here. You have, um, this is a barren grass, the, the, the fair burnier, or the barren grass. You have little scabies plants starting to come in. This plant here is wild thyme. That'll be flowering soon. You can smell it already if you rub your hands on it. This is a yellow clover. That beautiful biodiversity makes a delicious diet for an animal grazing on the burn. This, this morning, that every mouthful, we can see a mouthful here. You're talking about seven or eight or 10 different plants in every mouthful. So the meat here, it's going to be different. Yeah. Um, I'm sure the flavour will be different, the, the texture will be different and so on and so forth. And that's why all these literary references talk about how sweet the burn, this is going back seven, eight hundred years, how sweet the meat from the burn was. This is one of my favourite plants. Which all brings us back to that Dublin restaurant kitchen and the ribeye steak I'm planning to eat for breakfast. I'm asking chef Ryan Stringer whether he notices any difference cooking this particular piece of meat. It's hard to hear what he says over the noise of the kitchen extractor fan. But yes, he says it cooks more slowly, partly because it's been dry-aged. There's a difference in the marbling of fat. And of course, there's that sweet flavour. Ryan Stringer is the head chef in Eli Wine Bar, which is owned by Eric and Michelle Robson. Eric's dad, Hugh, is an organic beef and pork farmer, He's the only Burren beef farmer rearing cattle consistently from birth to abattoir on the Burren at his farm at Fahi North near Carron. Their herd of Angus Hereford cattle go onto the mountain in winter with an Angus bull. The cows calve in the spring and the cattle are reared for up to 30 months on his farm. Other Burren beef farmers sell their animals as weanlings to be grazed or grain-fed elsewhere in Ireland or abroad. Upstairs in the wine bar, there's a large photograph on the wall. The photograph is from my dad's farm in the Burren, just beside the village of Carron, taken a couple of years ago. But I, I suppose what's really noticeable about it is how lush the grass is. It's almost wild meadow. There's a herd of cattle going through it. Up on the upper 
part of the photograph up in the high ground is part of an old, um, a ring fort. It's a beautiful part of the country, difficult farming, the burn, the karst, etc. That particular photo is lush and, and there's a nice herd of cattle going through it, organic cattle. It's the perfect picture of how Irish beef can be reared, very, isn't it? Absolutely, very simple. Um, no intervention as such, um, just good it, it's actually historically, I think, they're farming there for 6,000 years. So it, it, it's nothing much really has changed given the landscape that's there. When you opened the wine bar, did you decide from day one to have beef from the family farm or how did that work? The, well, that's, that's about 17 years ago. Um, the answer would be that our inspiration at the time was tapas, so a Spanish tapas. So we wanted to keep everything quite simple. Um, wine was our main focus but my dad and Isabel had a farm in the Burren. Um, they were already one of the main um, stalls as such in the Temple Bar food market. Um, it just made sense that we tapped into that absolutely natural resource. Supermarkets show us pictures of lush green fields, but beef production in Ireland has become much less simple. Animals live shorter lives and spend much less of them eating grass, never mind the smorgasbord grazing of the burn. In summer, Hugh Robson's cattle are finished on grass. In winter and in wetter weather, he'll feed them the organic grain he feeds to his pigs. Not all the beef served in Eli comes from Hugh Robson's farm. He supplies the restaurants with up to 50 cattle a year, and they source the rest from other small farmers in cooperation with a local abattoir. Beef is reared organically, the land is organic. There's no growth hormones. There's nothing to speed up the process. Um, my father would contend that organic beef isn't necessarily better tasting than well-reared conventional beef. Um, so the key then is that you know good quality stock, good farming methods. You look after your cattle, um, and then you know we know what animal we want, the size we want, the age we want it, and then we, we look after the hanging process ourselves as well. So it, conventional beef can be just as tasty as organic. Um, we would contend that organic pork is far tastier than conventional pork. But from, for, you know, certainly from my father's point of view and then from our own point of view, it's not just about the beef, it's also about the landscape, um, the area we're in, the, I know that they have, I think he's counted just short of 10 nesting cuckoos in the area. Um, again, because everything's natural. So we're not messing around with the landscape, pumping it full of herbicides and pesticides. Is the grass-fed aspect of beef important? So much beef is grass-fed for the start of its life and then grain-fed. It, it's hugely important. But it's also, again... The guys, Dad and Isabel, would contend that there is, I'm going to call it a lifestyle for the cattle. So they, you know, they're out in the, the fields. There's little or no fencing. Um, the, it's the stone walls. They move around almost freely. Um, so the grass-fed is in parts flavour. The, all the natural, um, I'm going to call them vitamins, but all the, you know, all the natural foodstuffs that the cattle need. Um, but then there's a quality of life too that they're not being fed basic commercial grasses and or kept in sheds. The guys particularly enjoy the landscape that they have. You said earlier how beautiful it is. 
The sunsets are amazing. Um, it's inland, but it's close enough that you can hear the waves after a storm hitting, hitting the cliffs um, out towards Lehinch. And it really is, it always reminds me of, I think, savannas in Africa, that it is that wild ruggedness. Um, the grasses are, you know, especially in the winter, they're obviously quite a bit stunted and short. Um, the weed is the hazel bush. So it, it really, there's not too many tall trees, etc. It is a beautiful landscape and I think they cherish that. I have a question. Does Eric Robson think burned beef could reach a wider market? I'm not sure that it would command, nor should it, the premium that Wagyu beef. Um, I think, you know, there's that's too expensive. I think that there is definitely a potential for a grouping to, you know, the farmers to come together, that there would be a regional aspect to it. The burn is already a national park, um, and that if there was a code of practice, etc., absolutely, it is, I think, as, as is Irish beef, some of the best beef in the world, this would be even a higher level of quality and premium. We are lucky that we have a farm to tap into. Equally, they're lucky that they have a couple of restaurants to sell to. Um, and, you know, we, we pay market value. Um, it's, it's a tough lifestyle, but they know that we, we will take what they're producing. So we, we both work very well together, and it suits both of us. I think other farmers, I think to fa- if, if there was to be a local label, I think then that they should start looking locally to sell it. Um, the Wild Atlantic Way, the Burnham, the tourism that's down there. There's some fantastic restaurants in the West. You only have to look at Galway. So perhaps that's where they should be looking to produce organic beef. Don't look at the export. Um, We manage it all ourselves um, from the rearing. We obviously farm out, pardon the pun, um, the the abattoir, etc. But we, we look after the whole system, the chain, very easy for somebody else to do it and look locally, look towards Galway, look towards Limerick and the Wild Atlantic Way. So we've seen community-supported agriculture schemes where people buy directly from farmers as households. This could be a kind of restaurant-supported... Absolutely. Very easily done, to be honest. Back in Clare, Brendan Dunford runs the Burn Life Project, which pays 160 farmers to farm sustainably. It's being expanded under the Department of Agriculture and it's a model that could work anywhere in Ireland as a counterbalance to the pressure farmers are under to intensify production, to feed the global appetite for cheap, fast meat. That's a pressure that's changing some of our wildest habitats. So what's happening here at a farm level is kind of um, reflective of what's happening at a national level, that you have more intensive, efficient farming in certain parts, which is great. I mean, it's really important to produce food. And then in Western areas, what we're finding is we're losing a lot of the farming from those areas. And not only is that happening in Ireland, but it's happening across Europe. So... The very fertile grounds are being really pushed as hard yeah, as they yeah. can and then the upland of the margin areas right. are being okay. all the people Relation. leaving those areas and going to the hills. So yeah. it's a kind of, it's a real problem for, you know, in a number of senses because these areas of, are of huge nature value. When you think about flora and fauna, you think about the Wicklow uplands sure. and you think about Connemara and Kerry and the Burren. But those places are rich in flora because of the type of farming that took place there. But now... Yeah that type of farming isn't really relevant anymore because they can't increase production efficiently. Sure, yeah, There's too yeah, much labour yeah. involved. Mm-hmm. So we're starting to lose the farmers 
and the food, but also the landscapes, the shape with them. In Brendan Dunford's car, I asked him whether he thinks a burn beef label or restaurant-supported agriculture system could be a way of keeping farming traditions alive. But I can't buy burn beef because the, the cows are... They're you can, but it's, there's limited amounts of it. Yeah. So the dominant farming system at the moment would be um, whereby it's not through the farming. So they have the cows calve out in March or April uh-huh. and they're reared through the summer on milk and then on grass and maybe fattening uh, towards the end of the summer and they're sold in October, November. Okay. A lot of them will go abroad to Spain and Italy for fattening or some of them will go and be finished on grassland in Ireland yeah. uh, or some of them will be used for breeding, obviously. Yeah. But there's not many cattle finished yeah. um, in the burn. So setting up beef and producing group as we try to Kind of, it's very difficult because yeah. we didn't have the year round through the meat. Yeah. But I think it, it's something that could be revisited in the future. Yeah, um, absolutely. Because yeah. the story is so compelling. So that's the story of Burren Beef. Finally, it's Aftertaste, a potted history of foods we remember from childhood. Today we're staying beefy in the shape of a squat black jar with a red lid. Natural ingredients yes, it's Bovril. I wonder if it's significant that Bovril hasn't updated its Facebook page since Britain voted to leave Europe. When I checked, the last post was a shot of two jars, beef and chicken flavour, two days before the referendum. The wonder of Bovril, read the slogan, keeping Britain's chin up since 1886. I picture a marketing department in shirt sleeves trying now to decide which way to go next. Best not to say anything everyone seems to have decided while huddled, I'd like to think, over steaming mugs of hot beefy Bovril. Bovril is the most British of brands, now owned by global giant Unilever. 3.5 million jars of it are sold in Britain every year. It's also popular in Singapore and Malaysia, where, prepare to shudder, stirring Bovril into your porridge is a thing. The concentrated beef essence has been sold as a miracle health food, a way to a body beautiful, a staple in flasks on football terraces, a manly drink, a womanly slimming drink, and finally now as a mug full of comfort that people turn to when life feels grim. Its Britishness has long been part of its branding, but Bovril had a much more multicultural beginning. The product was the brainchild of a Scotsman based in Canada, who got the contract in 1871 to supply the French army with non-perishable beef rations. John Lawson Johnston called his invention Johnston Fluid Beef. It came with lavish claims as a perfect food to improve muscular tone, develop the nervous system and build a strong, robust constitution. Bone broth eat your heart out. Johnston renamed it Bovril in 1886, combining bovum, the Latin for cow, with vril, a fictional substance from a popular science fiction novel of the time. Vril was the fluid that a superpowered race needed to consume to maintain their superpowers. In its early days, Bovril rode two horses, selling itself as being British to the marrow while still reassuring people that the beef in the jar came from South America and Australia, rather than from British herds, which were widely contaminated with TB in the 19th century. The BSE outbreak in the 1990s is thought to have been a factor in the 2004 decision by Unilever to take the beef out of Bovril. They substituted yeast extract. After discovering one in ten regular drinkers couldn't tell the difference, and more than half of them preferred it. Just two years later, Unilever announced it was putting the beef back in the jar and stamped a beef logo on the outside just to be sure. 
Bovril television ads are gone now, but they live a zombie half-life on YouTube, where nostalgia merchants can be transported back to Bath Night Telly by the sound of the Thames television signature tune. In the 1970s, actress Sally Thompson, who played Joe in sitcom Man About the House, is stood up by her boyfriend outside a cinema before heading home for consolation from her mum in the form of a big cup of Bovril. Nutritious, reviving. Bring him back with Bovril. He's got big ears anyway. In the 1980s, tennis star Chris Everett Lloyd minces into a posh hotel and whips out a jar from her clutch bag, leading to a flurry of orders for Bovril by the ladies of a certain age all around her. Bovril! If, like Chris Everett Lloyd, you like to look after yourself, Bovril's a natural choice. But the last Bovril ad returns to the comfort theme. When no a greasy, unloved motorcycle courier goes home to his mum for the sip ah comfort of Bovril. Refuge from a harsh world isn't a bad selling point these days. Now, where did I leave my big red mug? You give me strength to carry on. You've been listening to All You Can Eat, an Irish Times food podcast with me, Catherine Cleary. I'd like to thank Moya Carney, Brendan Dunford, Eric Robson, Chef Ryan Stringer and producer Declan Conlon. We hope you enjoyed it and if you did, please spread the word. If you have any food stories you'd like to share with us, please contact us at allyoucaneat at irishtimes.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.